You can grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts, and uh, specifically Acts 18. We're jumping back into the book of Acts, and uh, we're starting this morning a new mini-series. Um, our overarching series is Forward. You see it behind me there, the mandate, ministry, and mission of the church. But this morning, as we kind of fold underneath that broader umbrella, we're going to be starting a series called Total Dependence, Learning to Live in the Power of the Spirit. The presence and power of the Spirit of God is essential for Christian living. It's essential for the mission of the church to move forward. And we see that taking place in a variety of different ways. In fact, you could say in one sense that one of the themes of the book of Acts is the work of the Spirit of God in the life of the church of God. Or the work of the Spirit of God through the people of God. We want to spend some time looking at this. It's important as we begin even a new year to remember and reflect upon the reality that we must be a people who are abiding in Jesus Christ, that we are allowing the Spirit of God to work mightily in and through us, specifically to produce change. And as we've prayed already and we've sung in many ways this morning, we want to be changed more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. I wonder if you've ever been to a restaurant or someone's house and you've maybe had a dish, a meal that you've particularly enjoyed, and you've kind of left there thinking, you know what, I think I could recreate this on my own. I think I could get home and I could whip this up myself. And maybe you've attempted to do so, and it comes out of the oven, and you taste it, and as you taste it, you're like, something's not quite right. Maybe it's decent, maybe you did an okay job, but it seems to be maybe missing something, missing a key ingredient or, or multiple key ingredients. Maybe you just kind of threw it together with what you had, not realizing that some of the key ingredients would make all the difference in the world. You know, when it comes to Christian growth, many, I believe, are lacking some of the key ingredients. And we're not looking like the real thing or the thing that we're supposed to look like in its fullest sense because of what we seem to be lacking. And I believe that the the Spirit of God through the Word of God wants to impress upon us the key ingredients for true Spirit-empowered growth in the Christian life. This ought to be one of our primary commitments. It's even possible to be somewhat or even very religious and not be experiencing the kind of growth that God has planned for you and that God wants for you, and maybe that you're realizing more and more that you want for yourself. So through our text this morning, I want to draw out four key ingredients for spirit-empowered growth in the Christian life. And we're going to do so by uh, seeing a snapshot of some individuals here. We're going to be able to learn from them. And the first individual is of particular importance, and he would become very influential in the life of the church. His name is Apollos. Look with me at chapter 18, verse 24. It says this, Now, A Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, and he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately." And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to, his, to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. 
And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. We're given a character sketch of this man named Apollos, and then we're shown a 12 individuals in many ways who parallel much of what Apollos is experiencing and will experience, but there are some diverging details that we're going to look at. Now, we're going to draw out four ingredients for spirit-empowered growth, and I trust that your heart this morning is longing to experience spirit-empowered spiritual growth. The first thing is this, you want spirit-empowered growth I pursue greater knowledge. That is the key ingredient for spirit-empowered growth. There needs to be a hunger, a desire, a pursuit of greater knowledge of the things of the Lord. Again, we're introduced to this man named Apollos who would become massively influential in the life of the church of Jesus Christ. We know as we read this section that he is the real deal. This guy has so much that is to be admired, so much, I believe, that Luke, by the power of the Spirit, is highlighting for us as things that are commendable, things that we ought to strive after, things that we ought to pursue. That's one reason that he is given to us in the Scriptures. He becomes a model for us of what it means to pursue the Lord and specifically, first see this, pursue greater knowledge. In this description of him, we learn what is required to gain greater knowledge, and I just want to highlight a few things that were true of him that ought to be also true of us if we're going to be growing in our knowledge. The first this is that a pursuit of greater knowledge requires access. It requires access to the truth. You'll notice what's said about Apollos. It gives us some uh, a geography, where he's from, but that is incredibly important. You see, he's a native of Alexandria. Alexandria was known in the ancient world as being a center of knowledge and learning and understanding. Uh, It housed the greatest library in the ancient world. It competed only with Athens for prominence in the, the, the realm of knowledge and the realm of learning. Here we see that Apollos was actually brought up in a place where there was incredible access to truth, incredible access to resources. We also know, if you look at verse 25, that he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Again, he is a Jew. Notice that as well. He has been brought up with the things of the Lord. He is well taught. He is well trained. And he had been given incredible access to aids and things that would help him grow in this regard. This needs to be true of us as well. We need to understand that for us to be growing, we need to place ourselves in a place where there is access to truth. 
We must be willing to submit, like Apollos, to further instruction and education of sorts. And I think it's, it's fascinating to consider the time that we live in. He lived in a time of opportunity and in a place of opportunity where he had this incredible access to the truth. I want you to think for a minute about the kind of access we have to resources and truth and education right now and compare that to what he had. I mean, some of us still remember the days when we actually had to study and go to a library. Remember those things? Most kids today realize this. Most kids today are learning how to study at home on their laptop, and they have access on a computer to more resources than we could ever hope to imagine. It's fascinating to think about what technology has allowed us have access to here and now. We have access to unlimited amounts of sermons. We have access to unlimited amounts of blogs and books, and there are apps that will help you learn and grow, podcasts, I mean, educational opportunities coming out of our ears. There is so much opportunity that is afforded to us to grow in our knowledge of the things of the Lord, and yet I fear that though we live in a time of such great access, perhaps there is no greater time where illiteracy and lack of knowledge in the things of the Lord has been so prevalent in the life of the church. You see, a rise in technology has provided us with more access than we could have ever imagined, but isn't it true that it has also provided us with more distractions than we could have ever imagined? I just wonder if you will process that for a minute. I'm praying I'm praying that your desire is to grow this morning, your desire is to grow this year in the things of the Lord, and for that to be possible, you need to understand that there needs to become within your life a greater pursuit for knowledge. You have to want to know more of the things of the Lord if you are going to grow exponentially this year in your spiritual life, and so I just need to ask you, as you consider the access to things available to you, what are you going to give yourself to this year? Will you find yourself more distracted by the opportunities and the access that's been afforded to us at this time and this day, or are you gonna find yourself throwing off the distractions and pouring yourself into the things that are gonna grow you in the Lord? Clearly, Apollos was a man who devoted himself to greater knowledge. Secondly, a greater pursuit of greater knowledge requires effort. Not just access, it requires effort. You'll notice that Apollos was an eloquent man and he was competent in the scriptures. This is one of the most striking phrases in the book of Acts, I think. And again, this is being highlighted for us of something of great value, of something to be commended and modeled in our lives. He is a man who is eloquent. In other words, he is gifted in the things of the Lord, but you need to see that this has been something that has been honed and cultivated. He was certainly schooled in rhetoric that was commonplace in the ancient world, but this is a man who took what had been given to him and he shaped it and he fashioned it, he invested himself in growing in this regard. But I love this phrase here that he is competent in the scriptures. In fact, some translations phrase it, I think, in an even better way. It says that Apollos was a man who was mighty in the scriptures. That's the sense there of competency. He had a great grasp of the truth. He was able to understand and unpack things in profound and powerful ways. He was mighty in the scriptures. Oh, how I long for that to be true of me, and I long for that to be true of you, that we would be a church and a people who are mighty in the scriptures, that we were bleeding the truth of God's word. 
John Brodus was a famous preacher. He is one of the founders of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he wrote numerous books on preaching, and he taught at the seminary. Days before he died, he was teaching a class on preaching at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and, and it's re- re- recalled that he said this to his students. He said, gentlemen, if this were the last time I should ever be permitted to address you, I would feel amply repaid for consuming the whole hour, endeavoring, endeavoring to impress upon you these two things, true piety and like Apollos, to be men mighty in the Scriptures." He looked at the men in his class and he repeated that word three times, that phrase three times. Be mighty in the scriptures. Be mighty in the scriptures. Be mighty in the scriptures. You see, he had to impress this upon his class in the same way we need this impressed upon our soul because it's easy. It's easy to be lazy in the things of the Lord. It's easy to not be mighty in the scriptures. Let's be honest. It's easy to be complacent and content where we're at in our knowledge of the scriptures. And it is hard work. It takes incredible effort. It takes immense diligence and intentionality to become a person who is mighty in the scriptures. This doesn't happen by accident. It didn't happen by accident for Apollos. This was a man who taught, who was taught and instructed in the things of the Lord. But you better believe, although it's not explicitly stated here that he was a man who took this seriously. He would go home likely late at night and study and read the scriptures. He would rise early in the morning and he would saturate himself in the truth of God's word. He would memorize it. He would meditate upon it. Let me ask you, what is your plan to saturate yourself with the word of God this year? Do you have one? Or are you kind of just gonna haphazardly walk through life this year and, and just kind of assume that every once in a while you'll pick up, you know how you have good intentions and maybe I'll pick up my Bible, and maybe I'll try and read through a, a few books or maybe the whole Bible, we'll see. What's your plan this year to make good use of your time? What's your plan this year to become a person who is mighty in the scriptures? And can I suggest to you that this needs to happen on at least two fronts. There needs to be in your life a willingness to read over the scriptures in a broad sense. You need to become familiar with the breadth of scripture. It's a wise thing. It's not required. And I understand that our lives are different and and there are unique challenges and seasons. But it is a wise thing and a helpful thing to commit to reading through the Bible once a year. And there are numerous resources to help you do this, numerous Bible reading plans that can help you stay on track and tick through this. No, but let me just suggest to you, that is one way that you should be striving to gain a greater knowledge of the Lord this year and his word. Secondly, listen, you need to develop habits of more in-depth study of God's word. You have to not simply be content with having a surface level understanding of the big picture of scripture or of even some of the big picture of the books of the Bible. You need to have a sense that there is a, a desire, a, a willingness to dive deep, to study, to grow in the specifics of the word of God, to grow in your understanding of theology and doctrine. It was often Paul's prayer as he prayed for the churches that they would grow in knowledge and understanding. And I want to commend that practice to you. You need to be a person who is seeking to memorize Scripture, meditate on Scripture, and to be in a place next year that is greater in your knowledge of the Scriptures than you are this day. Lastly, I think it requires passion. 
I love this. When you read Apollos, notice that he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. It says in verse 25, and I love this, being fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now, we'll get to the baptism of John in just a minute, but I want you to see the connection that's being made. Again, what's being commended to us is being fervent in the Spirit. Now, there is a translation issue here. There are some people who who think that this is talking about a fervency in the Spirit, big S, you know, uh, capital S, the Holy Spirit. That is a possible translation. Um, I'm inclined to think that this is talking about lowercase s. I think that ESV has translated it right. And speaking of our spirit, you know, there's, there's a fervency in our soul and heart. And I think the connection is, is follows in the, in the kind of person he is, that he's eloquent, he's mighty in the scriptures, he's been instructed in the things of the Lord, and, and he's someone who preaches powerfully the word of God. Now certainly we don't want to remove the, the Spirit's presence in this, but I do believe this is speaking more of an inner passion for the things of the Lord. And, and I think it follows because, listen, those who have a deep knowledge of the things of the Lord ought also to have a deep passion for the things of the Lord. And the greater your knowledge of the Lord grows, this should follow. If it doesn't, there's a, there's a problem in your life, okay? If, if it should follow that. If you have an expanding and increasing knowledge of who God is, right? If your eyes are being opened more regularly to more of God, your heart needs to expand at the same proportion as your mind, okay? Your heart needs to grow with your mind. Your passion and fervency for the things of the Lord needs to be stirred. If there is no affection with knowledge, there is a danger. And Paul warns about this. He says sometimes knowledge can simply puff us up. And that is never the intent of God. Knowledge is always intended to expand our hearts for God and to increase our worship of God. That is the prime objective of learning things and growing in our knowledge of the scriptures. It is never to show off our knowledge. It is never simply to win a debate. It is that we might offer greater worship and praise to the one who is worthy. The word there, fervent, literally means this. It means to be burning or boiling hot. Can you just grab that imagery for a second? passion of his soul is stoked as he dives deeper into the things of God. See, when we spend time in the word with a heart that is open to hearing from God, it will begin to burn because the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. There is a thrill, listen, in the spirit-empowered discovery of truth. There ought to be in your life, there ought to be a thrill and a joy to learning more and more of the depths and riches and wonders of God. There ought to be the results of your knowledge and fervency and passion that cannot be contained. And I think we see that so powerfully here. He cannot contain the zeal and the passion in his soul for the things of the Lord. That's why, that's why he's doing what he's doing, by the way. Uh, he is not simply uh, walking around aimlessly. This man is a missionary for the cause of Jesus Christ. He cannot help but share what he's so passionate about. You know, I was thinking about this a little bit this week, and you know, I think we can often be passionate about lesser things, can't we? It's a sad reality in all of our lives, and I include myself in this, that there are times in our lives, and I can, I can vividly identify sometimes in my life where I have been more passionate about things of the world than I have been about the things of God. 
There are so many things that pull me away from my passion and love and longing for the Lord. There are so many distractions. There are so many obstacles to us fostering and cultivating that passion for Jesus Christ. But as we look towards this, this new year, and I know we're, we're already into it, but I, I want to continue to put before us the importance of growing in Christ this year. We need to be a people who are committed to give up the lesser passions of our life to focus on the greater passion of our life. I wonder right now if you might be able to just sit and process for a minute, what are the things right now that you are more passionate about than Jesus Christ? What are you more passionate about right now than the word of God? Has God maybe bring something to your mind as I know he's doing for me? Some things that are competing affections. I wonder, will you maybe make a commitment even now? Will there be some things in your life that you will be able to put on hold this year? This year. Maybe just temporarily. Maybe permanently. Because they are things that are continually robbing your passion for the Lord. Are there things that you might be willing to give up and sacrifice because you believe that if you do, it's only going to lead to an increasing passion for the things of God? And can I encourage you can, you, can you have faith and believe that that's true, that if you're willing to give up some things that you know you're more passionate about or are competing, you have to believe that God is going to bless that. As you remove that thing from your life and you replace that with time spent with the Lord and learning and growing in the things of the Lord, God is going to increase that passion for him. The convictions of your life will run deep. The joy will begin to burn bright. The courage in your heart for the truth of the gospel will begin to pour forth. And that's what we see happening with Apollos. He cannot help but talk about what he is so passionate about, about what he knows and loves so deeply. And the same, I trust, will be true for you and I. But I want you to hear this, church. Passion is no substitute for content. Passion is no substitute for content. And emotion is no substitute for clarity. And so as he begins to speak, we're given a bit of a window in verse 25 into the reality that that though his love for God is real, his affection for God is real, his knowledge of God is accurate. Listen, it's incomplete. He's missing some key pieces. Verse 25 says uh, that he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Now remember, he would have had access to the Old Testament at this point. So everything the Old Testament taught about Jesus, he was accurately portraying. He was rightly understanding, though he knew only the baptism of John. In other words, he had not yet had full access to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was a gap in his knowledge. John's baptism, as we're told later in chapter 19, was a baptism of repentance. It was one of preparation where John was pointing people to the reality of the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. Apollos knew of and was expecting Jesus Christ. He knew the Messiah was coming. He knew much about the Messiah, and he was showing repeatedly from the Old Testament the importance of Jesus Christ. He himself was almost like John, preparing people for the coming Messiah but he didn't quite understand all of the realities of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As likely he hasn't even known that Jesus has come. He's likely has no clue that Jesus has died already. The Messiah has been here. He's died and he's been risen from the grave. And now something new has been ushered in. A new era, a new covenant of peace with God, a new relationship with the outpouring and indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. There's some debate about whether or not Apollos was a Christian, or whether you can say, I I think the right term is this, was he saved? 
And honestly, I could stack up before you a 10 commentaries on this side that says, yes, he was saved, and 10 commentaries, or 100 likely, that say yes, and 100 that says, no, he wasn't. It's honestly difficult to tell. My personal belief is that I think Apollos was saved. I think he was this saved in this sense. He was an Old Testament saint. He was saved in the same way that Abraham was saved, justified by his faith in the promise of God, right? Here is Apollos, a man who knows the Old Testament promises leading to the Messiah, and he's living up to the knowledge that's been given him in the Old Testament. He believes in Jesus, though he does not yet know the fullness of Jesus. And God in his grace is wanting to complete this knowledge so that he can become more useful. You know, by the way, this is likely in one sense true of all of us, that we all have accurate knowledge of God, but incomplete knowledge of God. Isn't that true? There are all ways that you and I can continue to grow. The truth of God is so vast that we will never plumb its depths or scale its heights. You know, until the day we die, we can still be learning more there is to know about God. Usually, the more we know, as the saying goes, the more we recognize we don't know. So for all of us here, young or old, seasoned Christian or brand new Christian, we are all disciples and therefore by definition we are called to be learners, students of the things of God and of Jesus Christ. Spirit-empowered growth means first that I pursue greater knowledge. I hope that is clear in your mind. Secondly, it means this, that I develop deeper understanding. Knowledge is useful, but it is basically pointless if we don't have a deepening understanding. And notice what happens in verse 26. It says that he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now remember Priscilla and Aquila back in chapter 18, uh, they became fast friends of the apostle Paul. They were tent makers like him. They took him in and he kind of became a part of their family. They were already followers of Jesus Christ, and for a while, we know this, they had been hanging around the Apostle Paul. Now, can you just imagine being able to hang around the Apostle Paul for a few months? The things that you would learn, the things that you would grow in, the things that you would pick up upon. And so here they are, these really wise and knowledgeable Christians, this, this Christian power couple. They're sitting here and they're hearing Apollos speak. It's probably the Sabbath day, right? And they're, they're listening to Apollos open up the scriptures and accurately explain things about Jesus Christ, but they begin to realize that he doesn't quite have the whole picture. They take him aside and they explained to him, they granted him greater understanding of the way of God. They, they made it more accurate, more full. They expanded what he did not know. They recognize those deficiencies in Apollos understanding. And one of the things that we can learn from this is how they handled Apollos, how they helped him to deepen his understanding. And just notice what they did first. Notice that they did not correct him in public. That's a really big deal. They took him away privately and wanted to help him and serve him and help expand his understanding. See, there was no scorn or criticism or rejection. Could you imagine in a setting like this, where all of a sudden, by the way, I had somebody tell me one time, um, an unbeliever that I invited to church, and, and uh, he, he said, well, how, tell me what it looks like. He said, I said, well, you come and you know, I, I preach and, and you, we worship, but I preach and you, you get to sit there, you get to hear and hopefully try and understand what I'm saying. He's like, well, like, go, can I speak back? 
I'm like, well, you can't. It'd be weird. I think probably not quite appropriate. We can have a conversation after. He's like, well, I would like, like, if you said something wrong, I want to stand up and tell you you said something wrong. And I was like, well, all right, maybe you shouldn't come to our church. <laughs> I'm thankful that nobody does that on a regular basis. And, uh, uh, and I, I just, I think that we can just learn just a loving sense in which they wanted to help him out. And they knew, listen, listen, they weren't sitting there, you know, arms crossed. I'm like, hey, look at this piece of work. Who is this guy? Where did he come from? I mean, what, he's still living like AD 30. Doesn't he know that Jesus is already... <laughs> there was no rejection of this man. There was no kicking him to the curb. They didn't want to embarrass him, Okay. And only God's grace makes us these kind of people. Before you seek to correct anyone, you need to learn from Apollos and Priscilla. You need to ask yourself this question. Is it my goal to help somebody or to humiliate them? This this wasn't a a desire on their part to nitpick, by the way. It's not like they're kind of going after things that aren't trivial They're not trying to criticize what is of little importance. You know, oftentimes when we want to criticize somebody, we go after issues um, that are really trivial and insignificant, things that really don't matter that much, things that just kind of bother us. And here we see this. They don't treat every issue as if it's of equal importance. And we need not do that either. Not every issue is of equal importance. We need to be able to distinguish and discern between things that are trivial and things that are serious, things that are minor issues and things that are major issues. And just in life in general, listen, it serves us well if we're able to categorize things appropriately. There are issues of theology that we need to consider, issues of conviction. You know, one of the phrases we use around here is this, in the major areas of doctrine, conviction, strong conviction, unwavering conviction, conviction, right? When it comes to things like the deity of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the virgin birth, the authority and the sufficiency of scripture, those are things we will not equivocate upon. Those are things that we stand upon firmly. Those are things we view as worthy of being addressed. And then there are minor theological issues, things that are are of still seriousness, but not of gospel consequence, the timing of the rapture, you know, a multitude of areas that I could go in and after, but listen, my point is simply this, we say this, in the areas of, of minor significance, we have tolerance. There's more grace, we're not just jumping on little things, and things that are tertiary, there are things that are so far down the level of importance, like, I just, I just think, like, keep it to yourself. Like, don't, don't bother with it, okay? Like, if you want to have fun little conversations with your friends, fine, but like, you don't have to run after somebody and, and jump all over them if they don't maybe see it the way you do. Just think in life in general. There's theological issues. There's wisdom issues that we need to consider and when we help others out. You need to be able to say, like, is this a theological issue, an area of conviction? Is this a wisdom issue? Is this an issue of, like, who, who somebody should be marrying, how they should be raising their kids in a particular way, maybe a, a certain kind of, you know, whatever decision they choose for schooling or education of their child. This is a wisdom issue. And even in that, there are levels and degrees of importance that we want to consider when we're approaching somebody. And by the way, there are levels of relationship, too, that make that easier. And then there's, uh, there's a different category of things that are preferential. And by the way, when things are preferential in your life, um, you know, oftentimes advice that is given but is unsolicited, especially in areas of preference, they're often resented and very quickly dismissed. 
Maybe if I could just give this to you as a, maybe a, a helpful guide in one sense. Don't be dogmatic where the scripture is silent. And where the scripture speaks loudly about things that are of great importance, you speak loudly, but speak graciously. Speak graciously. I love that that's what they do. The approach can make all the difference in the world. And what we see here is that they took Apollos aside and they ministered Christ to him in such a sweet, sweet way. Maybe, maybe you know, the Sabbath day, maybe they washed his feet. They gave him a good Sabbath meal. They cared for him practically. It's a, it's a cliche saying, but it's absolutely true. Listen, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. This so often can be the case, and I think they model for us how to, how to rightly instruct somebody. They pull them aside. Their attitude made a massive difference, and you know, by the way, the Holy Spirit can work with or without us, right? The Spirit of God could have changed Apollos' thoughts, could have expanded his understanding in a moment without Priscilla and Aquila, but what we see here is true of us today. He has chosen to work most often through his people. This is the way that God tends to operate. In the context of community, he wants to use you and I to help us all develop deeper understanding of the things of the Lord because we all have deficiencies. It appears that Apollos would never, on the surface at least, have come to a deeper understanding of the work of Christ had not Priscilla and Aquila been so gentle, so loving, and so gracious. Life in the Spirit spreads through people like this. And maybe you've had people approach you in love and grace and done the same thing and wanted to bring the truth of God to bear upon your life and your soul. And listen, the real question for us is when people do this for us is are we resistant or are we receptive? This is talking about our heart before God. How malleable are we to the truth of God? Or how desperately do we want our own way? How desperately do we want to selfishly resist the Lord God Almighty? And I love that Apollos models for us what it means to be receptive, doesn't he? Though he is eloquent, listen, and well-taught, this guy has a massive following. He's got an incredible ministry. Apollos humbly sat at the feet of these tent makers who he doesn't even know. The truth of Christ and life in the Spirit come to those who are humble enough to listen and be taught. You want the Spirit to work mightily in you? You have to be this kind of person. You have to be humble enough to want to be taught and instructed, to want to be corrected and warned, to want to be steered into truth. And this takes a great, great deal of humility. This attitude is essential for life and ongoing growth in the spirit. I cannot say that strongly enough. This attitude of humility is essential if you are going to grow as a follower of Jesus Christ. Every time we open the word of God, we should be willing to hear and heed it. Every time someone brings something to our attention from the word of God that is true and bears it upon our lives, we need to hear it and heed it. Deeper understanding flows to those who remove the barrier of pride and embrace the channel of humility. When there is greater knowledge and deeper understanding, thirdly, notice this key ingredient for spirit-empowered growth, I desire increased effectiveness. I desire increased effectiveness. In other words, somebody who is truly growing in Christ-likeness is growing for their longing to be used in a ministry capacity. In whatever way God is gifted, we just wanna be used by him and for his glory, for the good of the body of Christ. You know, like a muscle, use is key to growth. 
It says in verse 27, notice his desire, and when he wished, when he desired, in other words, to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. He had this newfound understanding and knowledge of the word of God. He had it more fully fleshed out. And he takes this knowledge and understanding, and he wants to be used by God greatly. He doesn't want to sit dormant. He doesn't want to kind of put it on the bookshelf to collect dust. He wants to be used by the grace of God to see others come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ by the grace of God. And I just... I love the heart there that he exemplifies for us because so often I fear, I fear this, that we, we can grow in our knowledge and understanding and yet we can lack in our desire for increased effectiveness. We want to hoard these things to ourselves instead of dispensing them the way that God has called us to. And Apollos just wants to be useful and he does. He becomes supremely effective in his historical context. He becomes extremely effective in this specific context. I mean, he powerfully refutes the Jews in public. This guy goes and he just begins to show from the scriptures. He, he, he confounds the Jews. He leaves them speechless as mightily he unpacks the scriptures and he shows them page after page after page. Don't you see that Jesus Christ, the one who died in Jerusalem and was risen from the grave, is the promised Messiah that God had given to his people? And the implication there is that he was used greatly by God. You know, his ministry would be, become so effective. It would later be said in 1 Corinthians 3, 5 and 6, it's on the screen behind me. I'll give you a little bit of context here. There are people in the Corinthian church who are lining themselves up behind certain teachers Right? I am of Paul, and I am of Peter, I am of Apollos. You see, he had become this celebrity kind of pastor, this famous preacher who was so gifted, so eloquent, so used by God, that people sometimes were more infatuated with him than they were Jesus Christ. Huge danger with celebrity culture. And here's what Paul writes to the church. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the growth. You see, they just simply want to say, listen, my objective as I grow in the knowledge and understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be a servant of Jesus Christ, to point others to Jesus Christ, and to let God do the work in their hearts and lives that only he can do. Is that your heart this morning? I mean, God's been growing you. Has it been something that has been increasing your desire for greater effectiveness in the body of Christ locally or maybe even outside of this body of Christ? Apollo's life shows us that we can lift others only to the level of which, of which we ourselves live. Apollos, a Jew, an Alexandrian, learned, mighty in the scriptures, fervent in spirit, accurate in his teaching, bold in his preaching, could only take the people as far as he himself had come and not one step further. But he wanted to pass on what he knew and understood. And he knew how God had gifted him and he knew that God had called him. And how about you? Can, can you assess right now in your life? Do, do you know how God has gifted you? Let me, let me ask maybe a more personal question. Are you actually being used by God right now? Are you serving the Lord faithfully? 
Let me take it a step further. Can you, can you point to somebody who is different in Christ because of you? So heavy questions. But I think the right questions, I, I think we need to seriously consider the reason why we're here, what God is calling us to, who he's calling us to be. He's calling us to make a difference. He's calling us to go out into this world and make disciples of Jesus Christ, right? Our whole point, our whole point as a church is right behind me. It's to move forward. It's to move the gospel forward. It's to see people coming into the family of faith. And that doesn't happen if God's people aren't exercising their gifts, if they're not growing in the knowledge and understanding of Jesus Christ, if they're not desiring to be used more effectively. So let me ask you, let me plead with you this morning. Are you willing to be used by God with more effectiveness to ever-increasing degrees? Is that a desire of your heart? Is that something you're praying about? We need to long for this. We need to ask God for this. And we need to take steps of faith to make this a reality. And that's exactly what Apollos does. He goes across to Achaia. He can't sit still. He has to share Christ. And you'll notice here that the church, I love this, the church actually comes alongside and encourages them to do this. You know, what I'm trying to do here with you right now, I want to encourage you to take what God has given you and to use it for his glory. And they write him even what was common in the ancient world, a a letter of recommendation. They're commending him to the churches and they're saying, look, this is a, a faithful, humble, teachable follower of Christ who can be used mightily in your midst. Welcome him with open arms. You know, you know, those who are committed in a church that is committed to spirit empowered growth longs to see others grow and be used well. We as a church, as a leadership, we we long to see you used with ever-increasing effectiveness. You know, they weren't jealous. They they weren't trying to hog him all to their self, and they weren't trying trying to squash his ministry. They were encouraging him, and they saw so much value in him. They rejoiced in his effectiveness and the things of the Lord. We celebrate, listen, when God is raising up others. And here's why, because we're not about building our own kingdom. We're about seeing the God, the kingdom of God expand more and more. And can I just maybe, just as a side note, this is just a, r- a real side note, but you know, one of the things that I, I'm aware of is sometimes as a church, we can become, not, not us particularly, but just churches in general, and maybe this is true here, I don't, I don't know entirely, but we can become so exclusivist. We can begin to think that God is only working here and that he's not working in other places through other people. And, and one of the things we need to be aware of is that we are rejoicing and celebrating that God is working not just in harvest, not just harvest broadly speaking as well. God is working all around the world in a number of different ways through a multitude of different people and denominations. And, and we're just, we need to celebrate that as a church. We need to be kingdom-minded in our approach to the things of the Lord. I hope your heart is thrilled when you see other churches growing. I hope your heart is thrilled when you see other churches planting other churches. You know, I, I, just, I just want to guard against feeling jealous and, and, you know, somehow comparing ourselves. We are in this for the kingdom of God and for the glory of his name. Not our kingdom, not our glory. Amen? Amen. Let us be a people who lavishly celebrates and bountifully praises our great God for his mighty works in whoever he chooses to use, wherever he chooses to use them. We celebrate this. We celebrate those who are being powerfully used by God, and that was Apollos. Powerful ministry modeling for us the necessity, listen, of spirit-empowered growth in the Christian life, growth in knowledge, growth in understanding, and growth in our effectiveness. And lastly, last key ingredient is this. I exercise genuine faith. 
This is another really fascinating section of Scripture. You see, while Apollos was in Corinth watering what Paul had planted, Paul came to Ephesus on his third missionary journey. There are similarities, as I mentioned here, and uh, with the previous section. Let's read the first few verses. It says, it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country, and he came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. You see the parallel with Apollos. You see the link that's being made with Apollos. In other words, here's, here's my conviction. Here we have another case of Old Testament saints. Okay? Those who believed the promises about Jesus from the Old Testament, but they had been dispersed. These are Jews. They had been dispersed. You know, maybe they had even been baptized by John himself you know, 30 years ago, but they had been dispersed. They hadn't been around Jerusalem, and so they have no knowledge that there is a more full understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the Messiah has actually come, that he has died and rose again. These things are critically important, and you can see that they're living in a time frame. Listen, here's what's so important to understand. In the discussion between whether these are believers and unbelievers, there is one kind of a interpretive key or principle that is, I believe is critical to understanding this, and that's simply this. The book of Acts is a transitional book. Okay, this is, this is gonna stretch your mind a little bit. We are moving from the old covenant to the new covenant. It's been established by the blood of Jesus Christ, right? The curtain was torn in two. The old system is done away with. The new and better has come in Jesus Christ. And yet what we have is this transitional period, this period of overlap between the old and new testament. And it requires a fuller knowledge and understanding for some who are still in the old testament system. They just simply don't know. So in God's grace, we are seeing played out the ending of this transitional period as these Old Testament believers are gaining new knowledge about Jesus Christ. And this transitional period, by the way, is, is, is a limited time. Never before and never again has there been a time like this, a, a moving over from one covenant to the next. It's so unique in salvation history. This transition is being depicted here. So just have that in your mind. We're caught here in a unique period of history, and God is graciously allowing this time to occur. They have embraced what they know of Jesus, these Old Testament saints. You can see the desire of Paul here. He's going to them, and he's trying to gauge where they're at. How much do they understand? He, he understands clearly that they are somehow disciples. He just doesn't know the, the depth of their understanding, and so to determine that, he asked them about the Holy Spirit. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were baptized? And their answer is almost startling, isn't it? We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now listen, that doesn't mean that they didn't know and understand that there was a Holy Spirit in the general sense. It means more specifically, they didn't understand that the Spirit of God had been poured out upon humanity and that there was now an indwelling presence of the Spirit of God permanently for believers. Every, excuse me, they, they just didn't grasp the fullness of this. 
And so he says to them, well, then what were you baptized? Again, he's gauging their level of understanding. And, in, and he says, well, into John's baptism. And, and now Paul has the framework to be able to help them. He, he sees clearly that there needs to be a transition here from the old covenant to the new covenant, a fuller knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've been prepped. They've been anticipating the Messiah. They have a faith. I was thinking about this a little bit as I reflected upon this. You know, there are many people who have faith. And and in our context, listen, nobody is is moved from the old covenant to the new covenant in the same way as happened here. But I think there are many people who would claim to have faith. I hear this often, that there are people who have faith and you know, they have a limited faith in the things of the Lord. Never again um, is there an exception kind of made, this period of overlap between these testaments. Now what is required is not simply faith, but the right content of the faith in its fullness. There, there is now required for anybody to experience salvation in the outpouring of the Spirit of God, a true understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is part of what Paul is saying, right? That this time has now come, and it has come because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so while it might be nice to think that just because somebody has faith today, even a faith that somewhat resembles a Christian faith, we need to understand that in Our era today in salvation history, they are so close, yet they are actually so far away. They are not saved, even though they may express some kind of faith. It's interesting what happens next. Paul says in verse 4 that John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. So that's what they did believe. That was the content of their faith. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So all of a sudden, you know, Paul says, well, what do I do? How how do I bring them along? I, I know what I do. I preach Christ. I tell them the fullness of the gospel, that sins have been taken care of, the one sacrifice for many. He preaches the gospel, and clearly they had been so anticipating this, their hearts were so ready for this. In one sense, they already believed it, just without knowing the fullness of it, that they embraced this so wholeheartedly, this genuine faith now takes fruition in the fact that they're baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. They're baptized as genuine followers of Jesus Christ, expressing that genuine faith in Him and in Him alone. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying and there were about 12 men in all. This is one of the few occasions where the Spirit of God pours out upon a group of individuals and they begin to speak in tongues and prophesy. It's one of what they call a a mini Pentecost. We see the Pentecost experience four times in the book of Acts to Jewish believers in Jerusalem, to the Samaritans through Philip, to the Gentiles by Peter, and here now to dispersed Jews through Paul. And like these other times, God has given a sign to validate the new covenant has come to the authoritative message of Jesus Christ is true. It's a sign given to the people. This is not normative. It's not even normative, by the way, in the book of Acts. In fact, what becomes normative in the Christian life all throughout the New Testament, it's displayed that the Spirit of God is poured out upon people at the moment of salvation. But note this, that God is making a statement. The statement is that we are living in the last days. And that we, through faith, have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
It's his power that will produce new life and his power alone. The Spirit of God is given to all those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. The question maybe for us as we consider this in our own lives now as followers of Jesus Christ, maybe, maybe you're an unbeliever and what you desperately need is the power of the Spirit of God in your life through faith in Jesus Christ. For us who are followers, the question is what do we need in order to appropriate and maintain the life of the Holy Spirit within us? How do we continue to live a life filled with the Holy Spirit? You know, the Holy Spirit releases his fullness in our lives through the exercise of genuine, ongoing faith. It's one of the primary ways that we continue to walk in the Spirit is we walk by faith and not by sight. Faith releases, in other words, the fresh power of the Holy Spirit within us. The more faith we exercise in God on a daily basis, the more the Spirit of God has full control and reign over us. The more faith we have, the more surrendered we are to the Spirit of God in our lives. The less faith we have, the more limiting the Spirit of God is in our life. We can quench and sear the Spirit of God simply by not having faith to live in Him. Faith to believe that His way is better than our way. Faith to believe that obedience is better than sin. Colossians chapter two, verse six tells us this, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. It's on the screen behind me. I just want you to think about that verse for a minute as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. He's saying to us this, that you received Christ by an act of humble faith, by an act of believing. This is how you entered into a relationship with the God of heaven and earth. And he's saying, just as you've entered into a relationship by faith, so keep on believing in him. Keep on living in faith. Don't kick your faith to the curb. You know, when there is no evidence of the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives, there's no power, there's no joy, there's no grace, those are evidences of the Holy Spirit. There's no fruit of the Spirit being manifested, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When those things are not present in our lives, it is evidence that we are not believing in Jesus. We are not walking in faith. We may have believed in Christ for five years, maybe for 20 years, Maybe today there is no vitality in life. There is no freshness to your faith. Our life has a bedrock of faith, but because of unbelief, there can often be a lack of freshness. We have placed our faith in something or someone else maybe this morning that is stealing that freshness, stealing that vibrancy, limiting our growth, we have lost maybe our first love. You say, well, what do we do? It's very simple. We need to come back to square one. We need to come back to the foot of the cross. And again, we need to cast everything upon Jesus Christ. You know, God gives us this opportunity repeatedly, doesn't he? In his grace, he desires for us to walk by faith and be filled with the power of the Spirit of God. And in God's economy, believing is receiving. The church of Jesus Christ desperately needs vitality, vibrancy, a freshness in our faith. I believe we need that today, and I trust you and your heart, you believe that.
Communion is our gateway to exercising genuine faith this morning. We come to his table and we remember, we repent and we rejoice. We bring everything to the foot of the cross and we say, God, whatever has been stealing my affection and attention, whatever has been limiting my faith in you, whatever I've put my faith in instead of you, God, I'm bringing it to the foot of the cross, I'm laying it down, and God, by faith, I'm gonna walk with you.